Hey peeps, this is Fernie, your resident psychic, medium, and spiritual teacher, and you're listening to Fernie Unfiltered, where we dive into topics that enlighten, inform, and entertain the soul. So the first time I met you, obviously, is when I was preparing to come to Santa Fe. And I just told the story a week ago in my last podcast because people wouldn't believe it if, I mean, it's just, even I still do to this day struggle with kind of the way it all showed itself or how it all came about. Um, I had been planning, we had, Ed and I had come to Santa Fe several times, uh, twice a year, um, and we fell in love with it and we decided we were going to move here. And um, so I had been looking online and trying to see other people's videos who had moved here as well and things that maybe we needed to know before we committed to that actual move. And right. everybody that I was seeing on YouTube and all the videos, it were, there were people who just dropped what they, they came here and they dropped what they were doing and said, I'm moving here. And they moved to Santa Fe like a week later. And in my mind, I just couldn't grasp the reality of that because who can do that? I mean, how many people can just drop their life and move to another state? Uh, yeah. So I couldn't, I couldn't grasp that. I'm like, that's obviously not going to be my experience. And I can't do that. I have a whole business based out of Houston. I need to transition everyone over to online. So I had been taking steps and preparing myself. But when I when I was looking for people who had made the, the move, I ran into your article. I think it was on Quora where you had posted about, you know, moving to Santa Fe and you and your wife, Judy had moved, had come to Santa Fe several times. And so you finally mm -hmm. made the jump. And then once you moved here, it was the best decision you ever made. And mm -hmm. so I saw that and I said, finally, someone with brains and common sense about the possibility, you know, what this is going to take for me. So I really just fell in love with the article in itself and I could feel your energy from that article, I said, this would be someone I would want to be friends with. This is someone who I would want to connect with. So I reached, I looked for you on Facebook, found you on Facebook and added you as a friend. And within like an hour, you messaged back and you said, do I know you? <laughs> you know, who are you? Do I know you? And I said, no, I don't. I don't think I don't, I've never, we've never spoken, but I read your article and we are, my partner and I are planning to move to Santa Fe and I would love to just, you know, have a friend in Santa Fe or know someone uh, in Santa Fe as well. And that's when we began our conversation. And at the end of that texting dialogue, it was less than an hour, I believe. Um, you offered, you know, next time you and Ed come, y'all can stay with us as our guests in our home. And in my head, I was like, who does this? Who offers complete strangers that they've only been speaking to for less than an hour, you know, come and stay in my home for, uh, for your next visit. You know, it's like, I like, does, does your wife know? And I even mentioned it. Does your wife know that you've done this and offered this, you know, and you said, yeah, she's fine. No worries. And I just, my brain just couldn't grasp that because I don't come from a life where people are that generous and not only generous, but so generous, even without the conditions, even without having to, you know, get something in return. And you were just so loving and open-hearted and giving in a way that I was beyond impressed. And it, it kind of blew my mind. Um, so what, I mean, wh where does that come from with you? You know, where, you know, cause I mean, you got, and you, Judy's the exact same way. I think you both just have such a huge heart. Where does that come from? 
you know, I don't know. You know, <laughs> you know we, we um, people that know us today, people that see our home and our cars and things, you know, might assume that we were born with something. We were born with some kind of wealth yeah. and that we come and, you know, our parents all worked in factories. Mm. Um, my parents never owned a home. Um, my parents never owned a car. Mm. My father um, was, I think, 58 when he first got his driver's wow. license and bought a car. Um, and um, yeah, so, I, you know, I think some of it is is sort of where you come from, yeah. you know, is if, if you know, I, I I'm always grateful to my mother. My 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 father was tough. Mm. <laughs> my mother, on the other hand, you know, I always say my mother was colorblind. Mm. She saw colors perfectly fine. But you know, we grew up in uh, Judy and I both grew up in a in a city in a neighborhood that was very much integrated. Yeah. Everybody worked in factories, yeah. and so. If I brought home a black friend or a Puerto Rican friend or a Chinese friend, um, if I had a gay friend, mm. all I wanted to know is, is he staying for supper? Yeah. Does he know that I'm making this Japanese dish? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so growing up that way, you know, my our son grew up that way. Mm. Our son grew up the same way, you know? Um, and I think... I mean, I thank her for that. She's not around anymore. Yeah. But my mother loved everybody, mm. you know, and and she had nothing. She didn't own a house. She always lived in a rented space, um, never owned a car, never drove a car, yeah. and died at 92. Um, but she had that heart. Mm. She loved people. And unless you did something really awful with her, yeah. she would continue to love you. Mm. So, you know, for me, you know, I, I have to give her the nod on that one. Yeah. Well, you know, you you and Judy were instrumental in us coming here because you made it you really did make it possible. I mean, the, the other part of that story is that uh, in a year later after that one conversation, because we didn't have any conversations after that one year later. I was in a situation where I, I found a property and we had a deadline and I needed to get this property uh, as soon as possible. And uh, the only way to do that was to have a representative on our behalf come and see the property. And um, I, the only person that popped into my head out of the three people that I had ever interacted with in Santa Fe was you. And I felt awful just even asking because I said, I've only had one conversation with Rick and for me to just say, Hey, it's been, it's been about a year, you know, can you go and check out this property for me? You know, I know it's a big favor to ask, but you, and I thought to myself, well, he did offer us the stay of his home. I think this is less than that. So maybe, you know, so I kind of justified it in that way. And you, you had no problem doing it. You were like, you were, you were, you were happy to do it. And that's what was so, um, it was precious and it was very, um, it was very appreciated because you honestly, Rick, I think you helped me to see the beauty in humanity and mm -hmm. you showed me that 
people can be good and they don't need anything in return. Um, and I think you were one of the purest forms of that I've ever encountered in my life. And so for that, I want to thank you because it's been inspiring to me as an individual, as well as, as Ed. I mean, you know, both of us by nature, we can be very like, okay, I, you know, you have to watch, we come from this, from the inner city of Houston. So you have to be careful with who you trust. And, and so to have that kind of level of just open-heartedness was so grateful. And then Judy jumped on board and said, yeah, we can do a whole home tour with the, with the phone call <laughs> and the video yeah, call. Yeah. You know what I, the offer that I made, I was going to take my camera and take pictures of each room yeah, for it. Yeah. And when I mentioned it to Judy, she said, Oh, I'll come. And instead of taking pictures, let's do video. Mm-hmm. We can go from room to room. To, and she didn't know you at all. Yeah. And she that didn't know you at all whatsoever. Yes. And, and it was like, oh yeah, we'll go and we'll take video. Yeah. And that's yeah. And I, I ever since then, I've I felt is eternally indebted to both of you, just because I feel like I can't thank you enough for the just the opportunity, not just for the move. The move is part of it, but for the opportunity to encounter people with such big hearts. That was the opportunity that you gave me. So that's where my gratitude lies. That's why I feel forever indebted to you for showing me the true nature of humanity in its in its purest form without being on the top of a mountain praying mandala you know praying um for every few <laughs> moments you know it's it's easy to be on a mountain and have a sense of peace and have a sense of love and compassion when you aren't, aren't engaging every day with us in the quote unquote real world but yeah. you are naturally this person and you are in the real world and you're not everyday meditating or, you know, practicing all of these necessary components to just embrace, to have that compassion. So that's, that's just, I appreciate that so much. Peace be with you and those whom you love. Though our troubles may never dissolve, we can try just to be what we can and do what we must when this wondrous world seems to So you are a psychotherapist. Am I correct in using that term? Retired psychotherapist. Retired psychotherapist. <laughs> and with and you wrote a book. You've actually written how many books so far? Five. You've written five books. And I think yeah. the 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 one that I saw that I was uh, it's called Mixed Nuts, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And that one. Tell me a little bit about the book. What what was the what was your objective with that book? You know, I was um, I had retired from doing psychotherapy. Uh, I was very opinionated about doing psychotherapy. And, um, and I wanted to leave something behind. I wanted to not just walk away from the field and say, okay, um, I wanted to, I wanted to write something that for one, anybody could read and understand. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and whether it be a person, you know, just living their life at home reading it, or whether it be a young person studying psychology, thinking about going into psychotherapy, mm. I wanted to show, okay, this is what the real world is. Yeah. This is what it's like. Yeah. But as a therapist, I always use humor in the office. Mm -hmm. And every one of my books has had an element of humor in it. And the toughest thing, because that's the hottest book that I, of all the five, it was the hottest to write mm. and took the longest. But it's also done with humor. Yeah. And that's risky because not everybody can find humor in mental health. Right. And so you had to be really, really careful. Um, you know, I would write a chapter and read it, and it was too serious, too textbooky, mm. and I would toss it, toss it out, and I would try again, and now it sounded like a joke book. And so I tossed that out. Yeah. And it was I, I spent more time trying to find that voice than anything. Mm. And um, finally I found the voice. I knew it was a, you know, when I first came up with the title, Mixed Nuts, Judy was horrified. She thought, oh, no, people are going to hate that. Yeah. And so I added, oh, what I've learned practicing psychotherapy. And that kind of mellowed it down a little yeah. bit. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but, you know, that it was a risky book because, you know, I could have had people um, – Complaining, I could have had people writing and, you know, saying that it was awful. Mm. What, what am I doing as a therapist if I can see humor in these situations? Yes. You know, yeah. um, I was careful about that. You know, I, if, if, I'm, if I'm telling a sad story, you know, I, there's no humor. Yeah. If, you know, and only the stories where you could interject humor with, that you'll find it, you yeah. know. But it was it's it was a tricky one. So you know today, and we had this conversation before where I was talking about the topics we would talk about, and I asked, you know, are there three less three tips or or things that you can give people who are going through a lot of fear and anxiety and just suffering right now because of the circumstances that we find ourselves in as a as people individuals, but also as a society as well. And you made it very clear that. You know, anxiety, There, all anxiety is not the same and there is serious mental illness that is not treated or that people misunderstand and don't realize that needs to be treated by mm -hmm. traditional psychotherapy healing and, 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 and techniques. Can you speak a little more on that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think part of the problem is the media. Psychotherapists you know, on television and in the movies are painted as um, just nice people who sit there, you know, with a pen in their mouth, um, listening mm. to people ramble and just kind of nodding their head like a bobblehead. Right. And people are just talking about, you know, what I call un unmet <laughs> expectation syndrome mm. or, uh, or chronic dissatisfaction. People are just talking about how life isn't quite what they turned out. And you have a person who's supposed to be a trained professional listening to this. Right. And that's absurd. Mm. That's 
that's kind of what life coaches do. Right. You know, right. you sit there like the nice aunt or the nice uncle and you listen and you sympathize and you pat their hand and say, you poor, poor dear. Right. However do you manage? Um, my training is in helping with actual mental illness mm. and unmet expectations and chronic dissatisfaction are not serious yeah. mental illnesses. Yeah. Um, you know, I make a bunch of choices and I look at my life and I don't like it. And ultimately it's because of the choices that I made. Mm. That's not, that's not a disease. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. Um, um, so with, you know, I, with, with doing psychotherapy, um, I mean, I was depressed when I was in my late teens, mm. in mid to late teens. Um, so I understood depression. And I used to think that when I went into this, I'd be really good with depression. The, the reality was I got really good at treating anxiety disorders and trauma. Mm. Those became my specialties. Not so, I understand depression better than most. But the um, but I worked really really well with trauma and I worked very quickly with anxiety disorders. Hmm. Um, Do, what yeah. would what would constitute as a as an anxiety disorder? In are there certain types of symptoms or indicators that signify this is not just stress or common dissatisfaction disorder, you know, common dissatisfaction, this is an actual traumatic or uh, disorder that needs to be treated professionally. Are there indicators of that? Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, the most common is panic attacks. Mm. Um, people who have panic attacks know they have panic attacks. Nothing is happening and they're freaking out. Mm. Half of them think that they're going crazy and they're having a nervous breakdown mm. and the other half think that their body, that they're dying that they're having a heart attack and they're going to die. Yeah. And that kind of throws gasoline on the fire, makes them more fearful so that the panic keeps escalating and escalating until finally it gets to the point it just sort of stops. Yeah. Um, that's a very common one. And it's one that not everybody um, gets help for. Mm. And it's something that, you can help. You can teach people to turn off panic attacks. And once they learn to turn them off, they don't happen anymore. Hmm. The other is phobias. Hmm. Now, with phobias, you know, people think that anything I'm afraid of is a phobia. So therefore, um, if I'm standing, you know, up on a high building and there's no railing um, and I'm looking over the edge, I must be afraid of heights. Hmm. <laughs> um, with phobias, what makes it a phobia is it limits your functioning, okay? Mm -hmm. As long as you and I aren't roofers for a living, mm -hmm. it's no big deal if we're afraid of heights because right. it doesn't limit our lives. Mm. It doesn't affect our livelihood, you know? Yes. Um, people, you know, people, some people are afraid of dogs, but if you're a mail carrier, that's a problem. Mm. Do you know? Yeah. Um, I worked with a woman one time. She was a nurse and she had a fear of bees. But her fear of bees got so bad that she was afraid to leave the house and walk to her car in the summertime. Huh. 
And then if she did, she would have to walk into the hospital where she worked. So she actually stopped working because of a fear of bees. Mm. Well, serious. Moment. Yeah, that is. I mean, it, it keeps you from living. Yeah, it keeps you from living your life. Please tell me what to do So often now I seem to be confused Moon above, please tell me what to say Am I gonna stay or should I just go home today? But sometimes it's so hard to see And I don't know which road to take Although they all lead to my fate Right now the burden's getting hard to bear But I can hear my music in the air I can hear my music calling me It's all What would in some, with someone that with that kind of extreme phobia, what mm-hmm. would the process of curing that phobia look like? I used to do a thing um, called progressive desensitization, um, where you sit in the safety of my office um, and you find a safe place and you relax and you go to that safe place. And we break down the experience into steps. Mm. And so step one, you're, let's say you have a fear of um, flying. Mm-hmm. Um, so step one, you wake up the morning that you have to fly. Mm. Step two, you take a shower. Step three, you have breakfast. You, you work very slowly until you've got the person going to the airport You've got the person going through security, mm-hmm. you know, all of these step by step by step. Um, what happens is as soon as the person feels anxious, you stop. They go back to the safe place. You start over again. Wow. And it might take weeks to do that. That's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. Yeah. yeah. But you wind up in fantasy getting on the plane mm. and putting up with the takeoff and the instructions from the, the, the flight attendant. Um, and you take the plane ride without the stress. Right. And what happens is that person gets on a plane and they fly to where they need to go. They don't love it. They're not comfortable. They're still uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but you, turn their functioning 
They're able to function. They're able to get on the plane yeah. and go. You can't make them like it, but you can make them able to do it. So what do you think about this concept where we're all broken people and we need to be ideal, perfect individuals? And so you shouldn't feel uncomfortable. You shouldn't feel unhappy with certain situations because people would say, well, she should feel happy and excited about getting on an airplane. And, you know, you're like, no, you know, she might not be happy. She might not be comfortable, but she can get on an airplane. What, how do you feel about that idea about that? We're all broken. We, we should, we should be whole perfect people with no problems or no concerns or worries or pain. It's worth a chuckle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, of course there's pain. Yeah. There would be no joy if there wasn't any pain. Mm. Um, You know, we have emotions and one of those emotions is sadness and it's normal. And another emotion is fear and it's normal. Mm -hmm. There are situations where you want to feel fear. Mm -hmm. It's what keeps you from getting too close to the edge on top of that tall building. Right. Um, If, if I'm in the middle of the street and a car is coming at me at 120 miles an hour, I need that adrenaline rush mm. because it's going to make my body run faster than I've ever run in my life. It's the fight to get or flight. Out of the way of that car. Yeah. Right. See, that's healthy. That's my body doing what it's supposed to do. Right. So to say, well, I'm going to be happy all the time and I'm just going to, no, no, not really, because otherwise I'll just stand there admiring the car as it's coming. Or hit me and hit you. And yeah. That's crazy, you know? So. A few weeks ago, and I, I did a video on this because there were about three or four weeks ago, um, I woke up in just a severe state of panic and anxiety and fear. And by nature, I am not the kind of person that experiences that really much ever. And, 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 so it was so extreme. I mean, I even felt the entire amount, just the pressure here. And I felt all this adrenaline just surging through my body. And it was such a weird and just unique experience to me. And I had to sit with it that morning and, and say, what is this? Because this is not who I am, nor is this something I'm used to experiencing. What is this? And the only connection that I had at the time was, everything that is happening right now with the virus and people, you know, not taking it seriously or mobilizing or just taking essential steps to protect themselves from any kind of contamination. So I Mm -hmm. I told myself, this is not, it's not about the fear. It's not about the anxiety. It's not about the adrenaline. I need to use this. This is something I need to use Mm -hmm. to mobilize or to just cause some people to take steps that are necessary. And I began reaching out to family members and friends and letting them know, you know, I need you to go to the store and get these things. I need you to go and take this measure. I need you to go and really consider a plan for this. And even Mm -hmm. though people didn't really take me seriously at the time and they dismissed it, but I felt just the, just, the incessant need to do that in a way where it was very, it it just, it was very confusing for me, but I used it. And after using it, and it it lasted several days. I mean, I was feeling this level of panic and anxiety and adrenaline for several days. Um, And then one week later, it just completely dissipated. And I felt complete, like I had done what I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Do you think that I acted in the way I should have in regards to that fear and anxiety? Or should I should I said, "Mm, I need to go and maybe talk to somebody about this, or maybe I need to do do something? I 
no, I, I, I'd say you did what you needed to do. I would say if it's that's happening every week, that's there's a, a problem. Story. Yeah. Okay. But you had, you know, one incident and you dealt with it and it dissipated. Mm. And that's really okay. I mean, I've met people who had, I met a woman one time who had a panic, who had panic attack, the history of panic attack. And it wasn't what she came to see me for. Mm. In the course of working with her, she happened to mention to me she used to have panic attacks. And what she came up with, now this is bizarre, but what she came up with was she found that whether she was home or at someone else's house, Mm. if she went to the bathroom and locked the door and took took off all of her clothes and laid down naked on the floor, Mm. the panic attack stopped. Now that's bizarre. Yeah. Never tell someone. Yeah. Okay, go to the bathroom. Right. Right. <laughs> you know. But on the other hand, she found something that worked. Yeah. So I'm not going to tell her, "Oh, don't do that." Yeah. Because that doesn't sound normal to me. Here, do this instead. No, she fixed it. You leave it alone. Huh? Do you think maybe there was a a prior? Um, incident as a child or growing up, you know, as children, sometimes kids are running around naked. Um, do you think maybe she spent so much time in the bathroom playing or, or doing stuff without clothes on that she just, there was some mechanism in her brain that still had an association to that level of calm or? I don't know. I, you know, she described it as feeling the shock of laying on a, like a tile floor mm-hmm. naked. Mm-hmm. It was a shock for her. Mm-hmm. And that shock brought her out of it. Interesting. So, so it, it was. It's just you know, and you know, for me personally, um, I always had stage fright, and when I started playing music, um, in the beginning, I avoided playing for strange crowds. Mm-hmm. I would play for my brother. I would play for my friends, um, and I avoided. And that's a common thing with anxiety: avoidance. Mm-hmm. It's the worst do but that's what I did and what I learned because one time I was put in a position where I kind of had to play I was kind of on the spot out of town I thought I was going to do two songs turned out I was going to do about two hours (laughs) Um, what I learned was that that adrenaline that I talked about earlier can be your friend Mm. When you're nervous about doing something, you're probably going to do it pretty well mm. because that adrenaline comes up and it's an energy. Yeah. And you take that energy and it goes into what it is you're doing. And, you know, I, I as, you know, writing books, I hate when people ask me to do readings. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, when people ask me to give talks of anything. Um, I always get nervous, but I always do fine. Mm. I know, I know, I know my voice is fluttering. I know my hands might be trembling a little bit, but I do fine. And when I'm done, I don't feel cowardly. I feel brave because mm. I know I just pulled that off. Yeah, and I know I really didn't want to. Mm. You know. If you could 
could see her through my eyes. You dream a thousand dreams you may have left behind. In the quiet sparkle of her eyes, you feel your spirit fly, and you love her. I, I remember reading an article because I have I, I have a level of anxiety and just in, there's an intensity there right before I start working every day when I do client work and I'm doing readings and so forth because it's very intimidating just to put yourself in a situation where you have to validate and show people this is what I do and and I'm connecting to so and so and so forth so I what I do is, you know, right before I have a routine and, and right before I get on with a client, I just take a few deep breaths. Um, I do use CBD oil because it helps with some of that anxiety for me as well. But I take some deep breaths and I say, this is not about me. This is about the work. Just do it. It'll be fine. Once you start the process, it'll flow and you won't feel this anymore. And so I talk to myself into it. And then it, once I start, it, it completely dissipates and it goes away. And I remember reading an article um, about Bono from U2, who every day, every time he goes on stage right before he has anxiety and a level of, of, of energy there that he it makes him not want to go out there, but he does it anyways. And he says it's usually the best um, sessions that he does. So it sounds a lot like that. Yep. Huh. Yep. I mean, I had seen a documentary on Elvis Presley, of all people, and he was going to go on stage in Las Vegas for the first time, mm. and tons of famous people in the audience. And, and somebody hollers through a door, five minutes, Elvis. And he turns to his friends, and he goes... Like this. And I thought, wait a minute, Elvis. Elvis yeah. I get on myself. I am so hard on myself because I get nervous before I play. And Elvis got nervous, you know, mm. and it, that's, it helped me get past that. It helped me, you know, the, again, the functioning rather than the comfort. Yeah. Because avoiding is comfortable. Yeah. But functioning gives you a life. Yeah. And, and, we're never nervous about things we don't care about. Mm. We're only nervous about things that we really care about, mm. like you and your work. Yeah. Okay. That means if I avoid everything that makes me uncomfortable, I rob myself of my own life. Mm. Right? Because my discomfort, my anxiety can be a roadmap to what I really want. Mm. So you're essentially using what you feel to connect with the level of depth and meaning that that is for you. Absolutely. So do you think, yep. do you think that a lot of, because I, I talk to a lot of people and every, you know, everyone, there's a lot more wannabes than there are going to be, you know, with dealing with people in the public. And a sure. lot of people just don't follow through or they don't take that next step. And mm -hmm. do you think that's a form of avoidance? That, oh, absolutely. Mm. Sure. Sure. So, sure. so it's really just trying, really pushing yourself, even if you don't want to, and just hating the whole process, just pushing yourself through it. Yep. 
So what, what is your take on social anxiety? Because that seems to be a trending anxiety or a condition that a lot of people seem to be suffering from. And, you know, the more I encounter, you know, the young, the younger generations, there are more people who have it, who, you know, they don't go out and interact with the world. They don't go out and do stuff. What is your take on all of that? Um, you, you know, it's another phobia. So I deal with it as I deal with any phobia. Um, I think, you know, this this age of everybody walking around tethered to their cell phones adds to it because um, uh, it's a whole nother kind of communicating mm-hmm. that has nothing to do with the face-to-face socialization. Um, you know, I said it back in the 90s when this stuff was first happening that I thought that that's where this would go mm. is people would be very, very, very comfortable sitting there. You know, um, I, I, you know I, I, I've had young people say to me, because I personally, I'm online first thing in the morning mm. for probably an hour and a half, two hours. I'm, in, I'm online probably two hours before I go to bed at night. I own a cell phone. It's in my car, where it belongs. (laughs) It's permanently plugged in to my car. And only my wife knows my number. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't walk around with a cell phone. Mm. And when I tell that to young people, young people will be like, you know, I don't, I don't even, I couldn't even go to bed. I don't even go to the bathroom without my cell phone. Mm. And I think, oh my God, you know. Um, You know, I think that, is helping the social anxiety. I think that is contributing big time yeah. to it because people, you know, I've seen, I remember writing to Taos one time and there was a family of about six people and it was this gorgeous, absolutely stunning, beautiful day. Mm. And six people, all <laughs> cell phones, and it was a family. Yeah. And no, no one's talking to one another. They're all, doing their own thing, you know? Yeah. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, am I the only one enjoying the day? You know, you know I, I, I feel guilty sometimes because when I sit outside and I'm looking at the sunsets, I want to share it with everyone because I'm like, everyone, everyone should have this experience, especially here because sure. we both know how gorgeous this, I mean, you're posting a picture almost every week or every other week of the sunsets. I'm the same way now. And I'm like, I've become Rick. I'm posting pictures of these damn sunsets every week. And, and I find myself taking the picture and then I am, I take in the beauty of the moment and then I get on my phone and I start doing something. And I even, I catch myself doing it and I tell myself, Fernando, what are you doing? Like, this is, this is what matters. Not this. You can do this later. This is what matters. This is only for a few moments. This is, is flexible. So I have to talk myself into paying attention to the awe-inspiring moment of this beautiful sunset. Right, right, mm. right. It's a big thing. Yeah. I, you know, I know. I get it. I don't, I don't spend a lot of time criticizing the 99% of people yeah. who are on cell phones. Um, it's addicting. It's, it's exciting. It's more exciting than we are mm. you know? mm-hmm. because there's always something happening. There's always something going. There's always news, always something more interesting than the person who's sitting next to you, who you kind of get used to, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, um, 
you know, there'll be someone else in the room and, and the cell phone just seems like a much more fun activity than interacting with a human being. Yeah. It's like, you know, you know, when I was younger, putting my hand in my pockets was my way of coping with social situations. And now it's just having your phone and pretending like you're busy on your phone. Right. That's uh, yeah. I, I completely understand that. Do you with with people who suffer from like OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder? Yeah. What would be an idea? It, is it is the healing or the recovery and curing of that? Is it based on the obsessive thought itself, or is it based on the processes of the obsessive thinking and the fulfillment of that whole cycle that creates? I would love to give you a simple answer. Mm -hmm. There isn't um, uh, OCD. You really have to approach one case at a time. It's like depression Mm. in that way, in that not everybody thinks the same, um, you know, with, uh, if, if, if it was something like the fear of flying, well, when I, when I deal with rape victims and and PTSD, you know, there are certain steps that I know that I need to take to get them to where they need to be. OCD isn't like that. Mm. OCD is trickier like that. Um, there just isn't one answer. Yeah. Every single case is different. And if you succeed with a case, it's different. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, sometimes you can fix it with therapy alone. Oftentimes it winds up being a combination of therapy and medication. Mm-hmm. That happens sometimes. Um, schizophrenia is like that. Yeah. You know, you can't talk someone out of schizophrenia. You can, you can, do a lot of good with therapy, but they have to be on medication yeah. or therapy isn't, they're not even going to hear you. So with, with, uh, women, cause we, I mean, this is the me too age now where so many women are coming forward with stories of rape yeah. and, um, dealing with very, very, um, challenging and difficult healing processes. And some of those people may not understand what that process would look like. So for uh, someone who has suffered rape or is recovering from a rape scenario, what would that mm-hmm. process look like? <clears throat> the, the, the illness or the recovery? The recovery. Well, when you say illness, what do you mean about as far as illness with rape? Um, most rape victims suffer from PTSD, mm. same as combat veterans in certain situations, mm-hmm. away with PTSD. There are uh, 11 specific symptoms of PTSD. Mm-hmm. And it used to be, they've changed it since, since I left the field, but it used to be you had to have eight of the 11 symptoms to be diagnosed with PTSD, mm-hmm. okay? Um, so the recovery, in the recovery, what you see mm-hmm. is symptoms dissipating one by one by one um it can be um this is what they call exaggerated startle response i come up behind you and i put my hand on your shoulder and it might scare you you might go oh you know or you might be clinging to the ceiling and you might scream that's an exaggerated startle response yeah you know yeah um um Recurring nightmares, mm. recurring thoughts, 
um, of the trauma, um, loud ex uh, reaction to loud noises, what they call hypervigilance. Um, someone with PTSD um, in a restaurant, you'll never see their back to the door. Hmm. You'll always see the back to a wall because they need to see the whole room. Yeah. They need to see everybody and they, they can't have someone coming up behind them. Mm. Um, an example of the symptoms. Um, when someone is recovering from that, you start watching those disappear or at least becoming so mild that they're no longer a problem. There's uh, intimacy. Intimacy is a huge one. Mm. You know, um, it's common for rape victims to, if you have a boyfriend or a husband, um, to suddenly not be able to be intimate. Mm. Um, you know, that's a real tough one. That's a real tough one. And one that's a pleasure to see go away. Yeah. Let's talk about your love of India for a moment and the experience of becoming a, a father or grandfather to so many people in India. Uh, you know, here's this man from the States who, you know, is white as can be and he goes over to India. Now he's his grandfather to so many people. So what, what has that um, been about? You know, I, I was probably 12 years old when I heard of India mm. and I was hooked. I just thought India was the most interesting place I ever heard of. Um, when I was in college, I did a two-year independent study project on Mahatma Gandhi. So even in college, in my late teens, I guess it would be in my early 20s, mm -hmm. I was still fascinated with India. In, in doing that um, project, I actually got to interview the Prime Minister of India at the time, uh, Maraji Desai, at his suite in the United Nations Plaza Hotel in New York. And I was just like a 24-year-old college kid, you know? um, but I actually got to meet the Prime Minister of India and, um, and talk with him. Um, so India had always been a thing. I'd always wanted to see India. I always wanted to go... By the time I reached age 60, I figured, okay, that's not going to happen. It, you know, I'm not going to get to see India, and that's fine. I've, everything's good. But then we were coming back from our son's graduation in Ohio, and 15,000 people were stuck at the airport uh, in Dallas. Mm. 
And we're in line to talk to someone in customer service because they're telling us maybe we can fly you out tomorrow night. And, um, and there's a young woman behind me and she's looking really anxious and nervous and concerned. And she's um, obviously from India, you know? And so I struck up a conversation with her and started talking with her. And it was her first time in the US. Mm. And she's supposed to give a talk at the VLA in Socorro the next day. Mm. And they were telling her she may not get a flight until the next night. And, um, and I said, you know what, stay with us, hang with us, you know, and we'll take care of you, mm. you know, and whatever happens, you know, we'll figure this out. And so she did. And um, the next day, um, Judy got us, Judy got her a ticket on a nine o'clock flight out in the morning. Mm. And then Judy got a second seat on the same plane and basically said to me, you go with her. I'll take the next flight. You go with her. Make sure she's safe. Make sure she sees, meets her people, whoever's there to meet her. And so we did that. Well, now we became friends and close. And she started referring to us as her American parents. Mm. And by the end of that year, she announced that she was getting married in 2015 and wanted her American parents to be at her wedding, not as guests, but in her wedding party. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And so <laughs> Judy was like, oh, my God, to be in someone's wedding party yeah. in India, that's, you know, and I was, we're going to India. <laughs> <laughs> And so I was on Quora at the time because at the time I was still writing Mixed Nuts. And, um, and I used to get ideas from Quora about subjects to, to touch on. And two young men from India, I happened to mention, hey, I'm going to India. And these two young guys wrote me and said, when you come back, would you write something? You know, just write your experience because I'd love to hear your take on our country. And I said, okay, I'll try. And so when we got back, we had a great time, stayed in three different cities. When I got back, I wrote something up two days later, put it on Quora. And that month, more than 100,000 Indians read what I wrote. Now it's almost at 700,000. Yeah, you're going to hit the million mark, Rick. (laughs) (laughs) And what happened was, you know, they started writing me on Quora and then a bunch of them got ambitious and it was mostly young people, Yeah, you know, like between 18 and 32, you know, and um, a bunch of them found me on Facebook and friended me on Facebook and, um, and that's when I learned to ask people routinely, where do you know me from? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, um, um, and first we would talk about differences in culture, and then we would talk about differences in religions. And then as they got to know me, you know, I would get these messages, um, you know, hey, Rick, can I talk to you about something? Can I ask you something? And they'd say, sure. Uh, because... You know, there's this thing going on in my life, and 
I'm not comfortable talking with my parents about it. And I can't really talk to my friends about it. And so here's the situation. And so I would be giving not, not, psychoan- <laughs> not psychotherapy advice, right. but fatherly advice mm. to these young people, you know. And obviously I'd have to understand their culture in order to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would give them advice. And all of a sudden they started calling me Bapu, mm. which is an affectionate word for father, and Papa Rick and Tuji or Tauji. Um, depending on what state you're from, um, dad. <laughs> um, uh, my favorite was Angel Pa. Mm. Um, this one young lady, her father was Pa, and I was Angel Pa. Mm. Um, and so now in 2016, we decided we were going to go back to India. And, um, and I wrote, and I told all of these Friends, um, there the hundreds of them by now, you know, these young people that, hey, we're going back to India, you know. And what I got back from them was, oh, you have to stay with us. You have to stay with us in my city. And I'd be like, oh, well, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, you're, you're 26 years old, you're living with your family. You know, I mean, what would your parents think <laughs> they about t- that? Saying to you what I said to you with Judy. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and the answer I kept getting was, oh, my parents know exactly who you are. Um, oh, my parents would love to, to host you here. And so now I look at a map of India and I look at these, you know, more than a dozen invitations and I figure out, okay, I could go here and stay with these people. Mm -hmm. We could go there and stay with this family, Mm -hmm. go to this little town and stay with this family. And so we came up with five Mm -hmm. families that we would stay with. And um, we went for, I guess it was 33 days, Mm -hmm. and we stayed with five different families in the 33 days. And basically the book that I wrote, American Bapu, uh, Bapu meaning meaning the, the affectionate word for father, um, is basically the story of how what led up to that. And then, okay, here's what it was like living with this family in this city. Here's what it was like. Here's our experience in this town, mm. in this city. Um, so I thought Mixed Nuts was going to be my last book, but this was, it, it, it was taking too long to tell the story. Yeah. And I just thought, you know, that I'm, I'm just going to, do one more book. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think the so, book uh, American Babu is a good op- is a good book for people who want to visit India or or kind of get a, a a feel for what it would be like to travel to these areas? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, not so much from a tourist point of view, um, because one of the nice things about staying with families, they don't all want to take you to see the Taj Mahal. Right. They want you to see the things that impress them. Mm. They want you to see. The, the the temples that they love. They want you to see the amusement parks that they love. Wow. They want you to see the buildings, the history, uh, the, the palaces. Um, and so you wind up getting a whole different kind of tour hmm. so, than, than the tourists would get. So it's a, it really is an insider's take on traveling to India through the eyes of an Indian. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because we ate. I mean, we ate it with them 
Um, you know, we lived in the space that they gave us. Mm-hmm. Uh, most Indians are shorter than me, so I had a lot of short beds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> either, either, either your head goes to gets to lay in the bed, or your feet do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but we just had such a good time. I mean, that their families became our family, mm. and and they would tell you the same thing. You know. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, well, it was really, really nice. I think that, you know, I, I think for anyone who wants to go to India and really get a taste of it from an authentic point of view, I think that would be a great tool and resource yeah. for them, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, I, 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 and again, there's humor in it. I point out things that would strike us as funny, mm-hmm. you know, and again, not trying to insult anybody, but they loved it. Mm. They, loved, they loved that book. And they love that I pointed things out because it makes them look at it through my eyes. Do you know? Yeah. Which is why it's called American Bapu India through my eyes, you know, is they get to see the Westerners' reaction to some of the things that they do culturally that are different. Yeah. You know? What what are two or three fundamental differences between human cult uh, American culture? and Indian culture from the perspective of just like our everyday experience and interactions with each other? What are like two or three fundamental differences that you've noticed? Um, personal space. Mm. We enjoy it. They don't. Um, they Personal space isn't really a thing there. Yeah. Um, people get in each other's space and it's just normal and you almost get used to it. Yeah. You, you'll get onto a crowded um, subway train and you just think no one else could possibly fit into this train mm-hmm. car and somebody comes and pushes everybody back mm. and you know you're right up against people you were up against them before now you're really pressing against them and then they let six more people on yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. and then the doors closed um, um, food you know, they, they're always, they have two kinds of foods. They have Indian food and they have their version of Chinese food. Huh. Those are your choices. Okay. Mm-hmm. They're amazed when I tell them, you know, that I had Italian on Monday and I ate Polish on Tuesday and I made Thai food on Wednesday mm-hmm. and made Indian food on Thursday and Friday, I might just have a burger <laughs> because they don't have all of those choices, mm. you know. And so that's a day-to-day difference. We just, you know, I say to you, you feel like Chinese? Okay, we go, we get Chinese. It's no big deal, mm. you know. Um, and we can do Thai. We can do Italian. We have all these choices. Or we can do burgers and fries, yeah. you know. Um they are. Well, what is American food? Well, okay, here's American food, but even I don't eat American food seven days a week. Right. <laughs> but I don't eat it, right. You know? and it's one of the things I find with India. I love Indian food, but eating vegetarian for me, um, I'm an omnivore, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Eating vegetarian 33 days in a row gets really hard for me. <laughs> <laughs> you just need a burger one day or some chicken. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so when we went back last year 
so many people had read that I wrote that in the book that people purposely brought us to places where I could get oh, that's funny. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> it was. It really was. Huh. <laughs> so, yeah, even vegetarians that didn't eat meat, um, there were families that cooked meat mm. because – and their meat, you know, meat for them is chicken or – what they call mutton and mutton might be goat and it might be lamb. Mm. But those are the two meats. Yeah. Well, cow, cow or cattle is a sacred animal for them. It's not mm. sacred. It's respected. Oh, got when, it. They don't pray to cows. Right. Do you know what I mean? You, right. When you think of worship, you think of a being that you pray to. Yeah. That's not, they consider cows to be the ultimate giver, the ultimate mother wow. that just gives and expects nothing in return. Wow. And so there is a deep reverence and for cows. Respect there. Now, there are like 25, I think, states in India, and there are probably about a half a dozen of them that um, where beef is not banned. There are states where you can go to a restaurant and order beef, where someone might make um, there's a dish in Kerala called um, uh, beef and tapioca. That's a very spicy dish. Mm. Um, West Bengal, where Calcutta is, that's where the wedding took place. Yeah. Uh, you can get beef there. Huh. Hmm. Most of the country, no. You've got a resurgence of your music now happening here <laughs> in, in Greece of all places because you seem to be making your rounds around the world. Uh, tell me about that and the experience of your music. Yeah, that's a crazy, crazy story because um, when I was in my 20s, I mean, I started as a drummer at about age of 9 or 10. Mm. But in my throughout my 20s, I picked up guitar. I started writing songs with lyrics. Um, between age 20 and 30, I wrote 180 songs. Wow. And I used to play coffee houses. That was no big deal. It was, wasn't any big name. I My first album was premature. I shouldn't have made my first album. I was talked into it. I can't stand to listen to it to this day, <laughs> my first album. Um, second one was okay. Subsequent one's okay. But when I was 30, I kind of had nothing more to say, and so I walked away from it, started went through most of my 30s playing synthesizers and writing instrumental music, and then at 40, got into hand drumming, and I've been doing hand drumming since. So when I walked away from the, the, the whole guitar singing scene, you know, it wasn't 
um, it wasn't like Michael Jordan leaving basketball, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was a big deal, you know. I did, I, I did this one last concert. There was a very successful concert, um, biggest concert of my life. Eleven hundred people showed up, mm. and and I did two and a half hours of nothing but comedy, mm. except for one song that I wrote for Judy. So I did one love song mm. in the middle of two and a half hours of comedy. But when I walked away from it, I walked away from it. And, uh, and it was about 15 years ago that I got an email from someone from Sweden. Because that's really where this story starts. Mm-hmm. And he was basically saying, you know, I found you online. Are you the Rick Cormier who did this album called Our Mountain back in the 70s? Now, that's the one I can't stand to listen to, okay? Yeah. And I wrote back and I said, yeah. And he's like, that's one of my favorite albums. And I'm hoping that you have copies that you're willing to sell because I'm just about wearing out my copy. This is the song I'm listening to right now while I'm writing you. Mm. It's like Sweden. (laughs) (laughs) And um, maybe a month later, um, and I didn't have copies of that one. Um, About a month later, a girl from Sweden friended me on Facebook and then another month or two went by, and a guy from Scotland wrote me, are you the Rick Cormier that did Our Mountain? Because I've been looking for it for years. And I'm like, how would you even know that that album even existed? Yeah. How would you know that in Scotland? And he basically came back and said, every serious record collector knows that album. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> that be? Yeah. You know? And uh then maybe a year or two after that, well, my, my, my mother passed away. My brother called me and said, hey, Ma had like nine of your album, Our Mountain, that first album. Ma had like nine of them. And she had about a couple of dozen of your second album. Mm. So I'll save them for you. And so now I write to the guy in Sweden <laughs> and I told him, um, hey, I've got some if you want some. And, he basically wrote and said, you know, I'll give you $100 for one, and I'll give you $100 for every one you're willing to part with. <laughs> and I'm thinking $100. And he said, well, yeah, he said, he said, your album here in Sweden, that album sold recently for $350. I'm hoping you'll sell it to me for 100 <laughs> And I'm thinking, I sold these things for five bucks. Yeah. <laughs> Back in the 70s. And um, well, then I get contacted by somebody in Greece who works for a a recording studio who wanted to know if I knew that this major Greek music magazine did a feature article about me and that first album. (laughs) You know, like, why would know that and um he wound up i asked him if he could get me a copy he couldn't but he made a copy of the Mm -hmm. article and it's all in greek but there's a picture of my album cover on there nobody interviewed me they just found it like they went online and found whatever they could find about me online and put it in the article Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) um so then bringing it up to date um 
couple of months ago, we were at my son's house in Philadelphia, and I happened to look for something on YouTube that I had posted, and I saw a couple of my sons posted on YouTube that I didn't post. Mm. And I started reading the, the, the comments that came, and they're, they're, I mean, wonderful comments, these really nice, kind, flattering remarks about my music. And um, so I wrote to the person who posted them, and I said, hey, you know, do you know I did that like 40 years ago? And, you know, here's where I am today. And, uh, but, you know, thank you for promoting my music. Mm -hmm. And she wrote back and said, I'm the station manager of this station in Greece. And, oh, my God, I can't believe you're writing back to me. Um, I want to do a tribute. If you'd agree, I'd like to do a tribute to your music <laughs> on my radio mm -hmm. station. And it might be an hour long. It might be two hours long. And I said, okay. <laughs> and, then, um, and then even more recent was um, I heard from someone else who heard one of those pieces of music, an instrumental piece mm -hmm. that I did when I was 20 years old. And, um, and this woman wrote me, and she has a dance company that tours throughout Europe from England to Russia. This dance company is successful and they tour all over the place and they want to work my song into their show. Wow. And wanted my permission. <laughs> and I was like, okay, no. <laughs> and um, since then she sent me a video of three dancers mm. like experimenting interpreting dance to that piece of music huh. and he has promised that when they have it down and they've worked out all the bugs that they're going to send me a real video wow. of what they wind up with yeah well you know so, it might be worth taking a trip over to europe you know and seeing the show you know it might be worth a, an, a, an attempted trip I joke, I joke sometimes and say hey you know pay pay for the flight over there yeah and the, I'll, I'll relearn the guitar. Yeah. Yeah. I'm making it, make a cameo. <laughs> That's funny. You pay, I'll play. Yeah. Wow. Well, you, and you still do music. I mean, I know that you run the drum circles as well. Cause we have drum circles here. So you know, what, what do you have the old Rick music and the new Rick music where it's more, what's the, what's the, what's the purpose behind the drum circles for you? Oh, um, you know, drum circle, I've been doing them for free for more than 25 years mm -hmm. now. Um, and for me, I think um, I love the fact that people who might otherwise have nothing in common get together. We don't have to talk. We don't have to process it. We don't have to, you know, I don't ask people to say what it is you, what do you expect to get out of this experience? You know, it's I'm Rick. I'm Fernando, yeah. I'm Jew, done. Um, I don't want to put people, I don't want to categorize people by socioeconomics, by what you do for a living, by what neighborhood, what schools, you know. Yeah. Uh, I love that it just brings people together. 
you know, people will say to me, yo, but you could ask for donations. And I say, yeah, but then someone would have to walk past the donation box. Mm -hmm. Wow. And I don't want that. I don't want that. This is my gift. You know, you get a bunch of people, it, it, it winds up, you, you meet the most interesting people, you meet fun people. Mm -hmm. And when we were kids, when we were kids, you and I, if we were the same age, we'd be on the playground playing with cars or some stupid thing yeah. together. Yeah. And, and it wouldn't be about talking. It wouldn't be about judging one another. We would just play, hmm. uh, you know, and then stop. And now we're friends. And, and I don't know a thing about you, except that you're somebody that I play with. Yeah. And I like that about drum circles hmm. is that you you know, I'll run into um, a woman who I know from the drum circle in a grocery store, and we go up to each other and we give each other a big hug. And I don't know, I don't know if she's married, if she's single. I don't know if she's gay, if she's straight. I don't know if she's rich or if she's on welfare. I don't care. Yeah. I don't know if she cleans toilets for a living or if she's the president of the bank down the street. Mm. I don't need to care. I know her face. And I know that once or twice a month, I'm looking at her. We're looking at each other going, <laughs> I need to know. Yeah. Is we play together. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Do so that's my, that's kind of my Thing, do you think that would be a great tool for people right now who are being, you know, they're stuck in their homes with their own families or with people that they don't normally spend as much time with? You think like having drum circles or just uh, doing some activity together where you're just playing with each other or having fun is a great way to get through this? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. We've had, you know, we, we get people who are single. We get married couples that come. We've had families that have come and, We've had some families that liked it so much, they went out, bought their own drums, because normally I supply the drums. They go out and buy their own drums, and they'll come back and they'll tell me, hey, every Wednesday night we turn off television, and we have our own little family drum circle together. Just me and my wife and two kids. Mm -hmm. Do you know? Mm -hmm. and, I mean, that's an awesome thing to do. Yeah. It, you know? It's really important. It's really empowering. I mean, when I went to your house for the holidays and there was last year where you guys had the drum circle in one of the rooms, you know, just sitting there and having, watching everyone playing and just being present and being in the moment. Yeah. And he, I wasn't playing because I was intimidated by the process, but I'm going to get there one day. You know, I'm going to get to that drum place one day. But for me, it's just watching everybody participating in this and you, it, yeah. it when you see everyone playing, it looks like a family playing. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. many times it's just people coming together and playing drums together. Yep. Yep. And, and it's not about skill. It's not about talent. If, you know, we in, when we were in Maine, my drum circle was huge. And um, we had a 90-year-old lady mm. who lost her husband a month earlier and came just to listen mm. to the drum circle. Mm -hmm. Someone handed her a drum and she said, oh, no, 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 I'm not a drummer. And they said, you don't have to be. And handed her the drum anyway. Mm. And so she started just tapping. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. And that's all you need. You're in. You know, it's not, nobody's going to say, you know, do the drum solo from Soul Sacrifice. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, 
um, you play at your level. We've, I've, I, there, there was one young woman who was a regular with us who was not only autistic, but was born with cerebral palsy. Mm. And so, you know, her ability to drum was limited, but she always insisted on sitting next to me and we would play games, drumming games. Mm. We would be playing a beat and I would go one and she would be playing and she would do one. And then she'd look at me and she'd do this. <laughs> and so we'd be playing the beat one, two, one, two, <laughs> you know, and that's unusual for someone with autism. The, the, the idea of play mm. is huge. It's, 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 it's a huge barrier, you know, um, and yet she was a regular and everybody loved her. Well, I think I would I would like to think that you had something to do with that transformation or just that tr transition into that kind of state. You know, I, I tend to make it clear to everybody. You know, I everybody knows lines from me like we're not auditioning for Santana. <laughs> or I'll tell them if we make a mistake, the patient doesn't die. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or I'll tell them it's only drumming. Yeah. If you're doing something and it sucks and you don't like it, stop doing it. Try something else. Yeah. You know, you're giving people permission to be beginners. You're giving them permission to make mistakes. Mm. You know, and that's important. It's how we learn to walk. Yeah. You, you and I wouldn't walk if we hadn't fallen on our bum enough times. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And um, same with riding a bicycle, driving a car. You know, you're just giving people permission to be beginners. You know, and in a lot of cases, you have people who are not musicians who always wish they were musicians. Yeah. And you're giving them the experience of playing in a group. And it's safe, you know, it probably it feels safe. It feels like a oh, great absolutely. place. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of my job is to make sure that it's safe space for everybody. Mm. Well, I think you don't only just do it in a drum circle. I think you do that with your whole life. Yeah, well, thanks. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, then like, share, and review my show on your favorite podcast listening platform. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and don't forget to check out my website at www.fernandamarone.com. Till next time, kiddos, and be sure to have yourselves a namaste. Namaste.